Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Two important topics on the agenda. In the wake of both the Southwest Airlines meltdown and the FAA ground stop, what can be done to prevent these incidents from happening again? Or can they? And if they can, who needs to make that happen? I check in with William McGee, the senior fellow for the American Economic Liberties Project, to get his opinion. And he's got a few things to say. And then, how many Americans have a passport? Do you have one? The actual number might depress you. So I have an extended conversation with Patrick Bixby, the author of License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. It's a fascinating book and a very specific look at one of the most important documents we can ever own. That is, if we value our freedom to travel. First up, the challenges to travel these days. William McGee has just a few things to say. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Bill McGee, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. I mean, what a year it's already been. I mean, I, I, it's it's been crazy between the Southwest Airlines meltdown, the FAA shutdown, and people walking around, if they can even walk, confused about what their options are, and of course, long-term thinking, what their rights are. And then last but not least, the, the big bad question, which I'm going to ask you to answer, not only how do you fix it, but who fixes it? So let's first start with uh, what messed up everybody's Christmas holiday, travelers as well as journalists like you and me, you know, the Southwest Airlines meltdown uh, which, you know, it started with weather, but it wasn't based on weather. And it was truly under the operational control of the airline, and they they truly messed up. Exactly. You know, when, when you first reached out to me and indicated you wanted to talk about the meltdown, I was, my first thought was, well, which meltdown? <laughs> we're, we're playing whack-a-mole here, you know? Yeah. It's the meltdown to your, unfortunately. Uh, with the Southwest situation... Look, you and I have known each other a long time. You know, I worked in uh, airline flight operations management, and I'm an FAA licensed dispatcher. So I was, you know, I was in the front lines and in the belly of the beast with, you know, snowstorms and, and thunderstorms and hurricanes and blizzards and you name it. And you are absolutely right. I, it, you know, it's, I think what a lot of people don't grasp, I hear people say, well, Southwest can't control the weather or the DOT can't control the weather. That's not the issue. I mean, there's always going to be weather. There's always going to be outside factors like this FAA meltdown. The bottom line is, you know, you judge an airline by how they respond to it and how they treat their customers. In Southwest's case, I mean, what can you do but give them an F? They completely melted down. I did the math very, very conservatively looking at their configuration of their the seats on their aircraft and the number of cancellations. We are talking, Peter, about more than 2 million people having their flights canceled. And that is with very conservative estimates on load factors, and we all know how full the planes are these days. Well, you know, so what that, I, well, that was uh, unprecedented. Well, what I did is I did a little bit of math, and if you say, okay, you, let's go by your figure of 2 million people affected, let's go 1 million people stranded. And if 1 million Absolutely. people are stranded, and you're dealing with three and four days in a row where they're, you know, accommodations, meals, in many cases, clothing and toiletries because they didn't have their bags, and last but not right. least, alternate forms of transportation to either get them to their original destination or to just get them back home. You're talking about an average expenditure per passenger, and I'm probably being conservative, of about $400. Now multiply that by a million. You're at $400 million with the checks being written by Southwest. Yeah, no question. It's just, it's unprecedented. And, uh, you know, and by the way, when you talk about alternate transportation, let's not forget that there was ample evidence. I saw the uh, screen grabs printed online of other airlines in the United States gouging on those routes, right? And suddenly, you know, a, a an economy class one-way ticket on a domestic route is, is $2,000. Uh, so look, let's let's get into it. I mean, as far as you know, Southwest and the airline industry itself, we've all seen some dramatic changes in the last twenty years due to consolidation and other factors. But the bottom line is, we are operating right now as if we're at peak capacity twenty four seven. I mean, that's the big difference from when I worked in the industry in the late eighties and early nineties. Load factors at that point were between sixty percent and seventy percent. If I had to cancel a four thirty departure on the shuttle. And I knew that, you know, there were three empty seats on the 530 to 630 for every seven seats that were filled, right? And so we could do something. The problem now is we're just at peak capacity. We don't have enough crew members to operate the flights that are in the schedules in some cases. We've seen that happen over the last year. There were flights that that money was collected on, but there was a reasonable doubt that the airlines were even going to be able to operate them. And that's why we had the massive cancellations last summer. 
So when you have, you know, when you're operating at peak capacity, I've talked to a lot of, you know, really wonky uh, academics and people that study transportation systems. Transportation systems are not designed to operate at peak capacity as if it's the, you know, LA freeway system at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, or if it's the New York City subways, you know, at six o'clock PM, not designed that way. So now when things go bad, they go bad so quickly. Southwest is exhibit A at this. I mean, you could study it for years and say, look, the domino effect kicks in. What are you supposed to do when load factors are, are, are north of 90%? Flights are practically full, particularly on a holiday. And then you start having cancellation. What are you, you going to do with those people? And as, as new, new passengers keep showing up in the following days that have reservations, you know, on December 26th and 7th and 28th. Well, you know what? I, I, I failed math and physics in college, but I will tell you this. I can understand the breaking of certain physical laws, and you, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, there's no place to put them. Exactly, and that's, and that's the bottom line. And so, you know, we, we have to have a larger conversation about this. And we haven't even gotten into the FAA yet. I guess quickly, Bill, the answer is the question. And the question is, where do we go from here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you were kind enough to have me on about 10 years ago when my book, Attention All Passengers, came out. And that was really a scathing indictment of the DOT and the DOT subsidiary, the FAA, and their lack of oversight of this industry. And it just continues to get worse year after year. On the DOT side, what we have seen is that in 2022, with record numbers of flight cancellations and record numbers of unpaid refunds, other than frontier, there wasn't a single U.S. airline that was fined so much as $1 by the DOT. On the FAA side, this is an, uh, you know, an agency that has been underfunded and understaffed for years. I mean, we can talk about the FAA in terms of the world's largest air traffic control network. We can talk about it in terms of the safety inspectors that have to oversee Boeing with the MAX, that have to oversee airline maintenance, airline pilots, outside repair stations, all the outsourced maintenance. We really have to have the type of conversation that the nation had in the 70s prior to deregulation in 1978. We just keep going from crisis to crisis. I mean, you and I can joke about the fact that we wake up and say, oh boy, you know, what's the crisis du jour? But that's that's the way it's coming. And the crises are coming within a shorter range of each other. They just keep coming. Let, and, me, and so yeah, let, us, let me give you a quick question here. And it's one that yeah. I think you'll, you'll embrace. And that is, let's start with the good news. The good news is we've had the safest 30 years in commercial aviation since aviation began. That's the good news, okay? And you and yeah. I can both embrace that and support that because it's factually correct. So the challenge is not how we improve that because it's pretty strong. The challenge is how do we maintain that? And exactly. if we have a situation where airlines are outsourcing their maintenance to foreign maintenance repair organizations where there is no inspection or federal aviation oversight, that's a recipe for disaster. If we are allowing airlines to practice their evacuation tests to comply with the FAA regulations of evacuating a fully loaded plane with half the exits blocked in less than 90 seconds, and we're allowing the airlines to do that and comply with that on computer, I have a problem with that. If we're letting no our, if we're letting manufacturers certify the airworthiness of their own planes with their own employees, that's disaster like in neon. So, I mean, why has this been allowed to happen? And this, by the way, predates any of the stuff we've been talking about today. Oh, no question. And I couldn't agree with you more on all those and other safety issues. You know, as you know, I've been I've been involved in investigating these maintenance outsourcing problems for years. The bottom line is there's safety and there's a safety net. And so the safety record, of course, we know it's never been safer. A lot of that is due to improvements in technology, but it's also due to the hundreds of thousands of men and women in the U.S. airline industry who every day fight to make it safe in the front lines. But at the same time, you have people in the C-suites who are saying, you know what, it's a good idea to send the aircraft to El Salvador where the FAA hasn't been in a year. That is eroding the safety net. 
And that is long-term, that's problematic. So we really have to have that national conversation about the FAA. Look, if you want to look at this from a political lens, and that's not usually what I do, but if you want to, I've been doing this long enough, you've been doing this long enough. We are talking about a lot of blame to go around. We're talking about multiple administrations, not years, Peter, decades, Democrats, Republicans. This is bigger than that. We really need to have a national discussion to say, look, if the FAA doesn't have the, the funding and the staffing so that it can prevent the type of thing that we saw with this IT outage that just occurred, then we need to give them the funding and the staffing. It's not a sexy thing to go into, you know, budget time and say, well, we need more money for the FAA. But we have to. I mean, this is this is the type of thing where you're, you're, you're penny-wise and pound foolish. For every dollar that we don't spend on the FAA, it comes, it comes back to bite us. I mean, how did that work with the max with 346 fatalities? And now look at the money that Boeing is spending to try and fix that mess and, and the credibility that has been done to that brand, which was once a stellar brand. So we have to have that conversation. And we're starting at Economic Liberties. What we're saying is the first thing that has to change is we have to eliminate federal preemption. I know it's a geeky legal term, but what, basically... What, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Sure. In 1978, at, in, the, in the final hours before President Carter signed the, signed the Deregulation Act, they added a clause that said virtually only Congress and the DOT will have oversight of the airline industry. And what that means for you and me and everyone else that buys an airline ticket is... As, a, as an American citizen, you have fewer rights with the airlines than you do with virtually any other industry. That means you can't sue through state courts, class action suits through state courts. State AGs have no authority, state legislatures. So the airlines have this, this sort of invisible liability shield that, that allows them. Of course, on the one hand, they'll take our taxpayer bailouts, $54 billion the last time with COVID. But at the same time, they're exempt from the same type of oversight that every other industry in America has. So we're saying the DOT is a failed regulatory agency. Let's get rid of federal preemption. We're hoping that it's going to be introduced in Congress. We wrote model legislation on it. Hope to have good news to come back and talk to you about that soon. Yeah. And let's let's get this conversation going. Well, because, you know, you know yeah. I'm, I'm sure you get this, Peter. I, I'm in social settings, parties, holidays, weddings, and people say to me, what's wrong with the industry? What's wrong with the airline? Like, you know, everyone knows instinctively something is really wrong. But for the average traveler, they're like, they can't put their finger on it. We think, you know, it's time to have that conversation. My thanks to William. I asked it before. Do you use a passport? Even better, do you use it? But what about the true power of the passport throughout history and what it really means? Patrick Bixby on his new book and how passports don't just allow you to cross a border. It also allows you to truly connect with people. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Patrick Bixby, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to Arizona. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let's talk about this. The history of the passport, the physical history of the passport, uh, it was always some form of a document or a letter, right? Or a clay tablet or right. a terracotta coin or other documents. It was something that you could present. Items, yeah. Right. Of course, some people remember the movie Casablanca where, where Peter Lawyer was always talking about the letters of transit, right? That was the passport there. Uh, so there's always been a need, right, to have some sort of a document or, a, or an item to give you the right of passage, we now have a document in, the, in America that's good for 10 years that the original document is 24 pages. You can get an extended document of about 52 pages. Um, and it's probably the best investment you could ever make because it's about $12 a year if you amortize it out or $13 a year. Um, and it gives you the world. It gives you the world. Um, in your research on the whole history of the passport, Let's go back, because when you go back to the tablets and you go back to the coins, um, hardly anybody traveled then, right, as a percentage of the population. True. We were talking about couriers, yeah. uh, messengers uh, of one kind or another who were sent out by their leaders to do state work, to do the, the bidding of their sovereign. And one of the ways to protect them on their journeys was to give them these passport-like documents, which go all the way back to about 3,500 years ago. And in those days, the passport was a document granted to you, let's say, by the king. Directly from your sovereign, yeah. Yeah, right. Not the State Department, but the king, right? Indeed. Wow. Although the language in those old documents is strikingly similar to the language inside a modern U.S. passport, uh, one of the things that I have folks do when I talk to them about passports is have them to actually open up the document and read the legalese of the nation state that's contained therein. And th there's some sort of mild threats about how the citizens of the U.S. should be treated by foreign entities. They were stronger in previous epics, but they remain with us in a similar Well, the foreign kind of entities form. didn't bother to read the passports either. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> and And it's interesting because... You know, you don't realize what something's worth until you don't have it anymore or you don't have access to it. I carry two passports, and I can legally do that uh, because I'm going to different countries who don't like each other. Mm. So I, that's, that's why I'm able to have two passports. But anybody listening to the show can also have two passports. You're not doing anything illegal. You just have to ask for it. Um, and the reason why I have two passports is because if I have to send one of my passports in for a visa and it's going to take 10 days to get the visa... I can't deny myself the option of not being able to travel because I don't have the passport, right? Because that's how crazy my travel schedule is. But it also tells you about my obsession with having a passport. I don't ever want to be without one. Well, the attachment that we have with our passports is, it's a practical one for the reasons you've just described. We need it to go anywhere across borders. But there's a kind of emotional attachment to the document as well. And that can be in a positive sense, the, the sort of memories that it evokes when we thumb through the pages and look at the visa stamps and so forth, but also 
that uh, moment of panic when you're ready to set out uh, for and your journey and you can't find the document. Uh, and then many other flavors as well associated with the different kinds of activities that the passport is involved in. We're talking with Patrick Bixby, the author of License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. You talk about the emotional connection. I have an admission to make. I've kept all my passports. Very good. For, since I'm 12, right? And here's the crazy part. I have visa stamps in those passports of countries that no longer exist. Fantastic. Right? And now the thing that's really coming to bother me a lot is so many countries now no longer stamp them. That's true. Yeah, I just came back from Argentina a few weeks ago and I didn't get a stamp. I really wanted one. You felt you felt uh, uh, cheated a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the that's interesting that you note those uh, stamps from nations that no longer exist because one of the things that I find so fascinating about the passport, it has these personal connections. It tells our story through those visa stamps, through those pictures of us yeah. in previous uh, eras and so forth. But it also links us to these broader histories of the nation state, of international relations, geopolitics, and so because forth. Because the passport now tells the story. Yeah, the passport is it's, it's a document like few other historical documents in a sense, because it provides these intimate details about an individual, but it tells us about the state of their government, of their country uh, in the international order uh, at the very same time. So it connects us in this very immediate way with these larger political and issues. sometimes the password tells a story that you're not anticipating. I remember back in 1989 going to South Africa and you had to get a visa. And I went to the South African consulate in New York and they didn't want to give me a visa because I was a journalist. Hmm. And so I bitched and screamed, and I finally got the visa, but they put a special stamp in it. I still have it. And then they had a space in there which in which they wrote, in ink, must say nice things about South Africa. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, fat chance on that one. <laughs> During apartheid, are you nuts? No, but the point is, that's the kind of, you know, or there were the stamps that they give you and they'd specify you could only stay for 24 hours, hmm. right, or three days. They, they wanted you in, and they wanted you out. And then there were the countries that would never give you a visa, but then because of extraordinary circumstances, were forced to. So we now know, of course, uh, three or four years ago, it was actually three years ago, Saudi Arabia opens up for the first time in the kingdom's 79-year history to allow visas to anybody who wants to go, more or less. Uh, but I had a, I had a visa to go there in 1990 when nobody got a visa. You know why? Gulf War One. Mm. I was going to Dharan to cover the war. They Look, my last name is Greenberg, and I got a visa to Saudi Arabia in 1990 only because they had to. Of right? course, yeah. I mean, so you look at my passport, and you see this. It was a one-page visa. I mean, it, was a, it took up the whole, uh, whole page only because they had to because they had to let journalists in, not because they wanted to. And then, of course, there are the countries, because of the international conflicts that they're currently involved in, may give you the option of not stamping the, the passport at all. So, so that it's not there the next time you cross a border where well, their enemies country, reside. Well, a country that they don't get along with exactly, sees it yeah. and, and busts you. So Israel will not stamp your passport if you don't want them to. They'll give you a piece of paper that they'll put in the passport that they will then take out when you leave the country. Cuba, if you ask them not to stamp the passport, they won't. Mm. I mean, it's very interesting to see how... Every, and, and the reason why they do that is not because they want to be nice and kind. They just want, they just want the revenue from tourists. Of course. Yeah. They, they, want, they want you to come. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's the driving economic power of travel and tourism. Well, someday I'd like to interview you about your passports, Peter, that's for sure. I'm happy to do uh, it. But you're proving my point here that, you know, you're, you as an individual going about your professional duties and, and perhaps a bit of tourism integrated with that are getting bounced around by these larger forces that are played out through the passport regime. Oh, yeah. And now, of course, as electronics uh, are developed, the passport that we know, right, is becoming, at least the physical passport that we know, because of biometrics and everything else, is becoming somewhat less relevant. I think it's on its way out in the next uh, decade or so. You know, everything has gone to our smartphones and the passport is heading in that direction as well. There are already apps that serve that function in some parts of the world. So, that, I mean, for me as a historian who loves documents and loves being able me to too. see these stories, you know, stamped into the pages of a passport, that's all going to go away in a sense. You know, there'll be other kinds of digital archives that will give us similar well, sorts of information. I mean, right now, uh, forgetting what they've done in terms of regular security checkpoints like clear at airports, but the TSA now has biometrics. Department of Homeland Security has biometrics. Customs and Border Protection has biometrics. So that in the old days, you had global entry, where you put your passport in a reader in the kiosk. It would take your picture. And then, assuming everything matched, it would give you a receipt in less than two minutes, and you're gone. Well, guess what? That's gone now. Now, you do not put your passport in. You just look at the picture. It, do, it, it doesn't give you a picture back, and it doesn't give you a receipt back. It just tells you to proceed mm-hmm. because it's already recognized your eyes. And when you get to the checkpoint, the customs guy goes, Peter Greenberg? Goes, yes, okay, go ahead. That's it. Yeah. And I'm still waiting. So they're not even stamping my passport in the U.S. anymore. But the function of all this is the same, right? It's to regulate international migration sure. movement, travel to, to register travelers destinations and so forth so the nation state still exercises its power even more forcefully in a sense because it has these new technological means to do so but it's all in the name of the same kinds of control and so forth so this is the kind of paradox of the passport that we often associate the document with freedom of movement with adventure we do in this country right well and we should talk about that too the the difference in passports across the, the global system uh, but we have those kinds of positive associations with the document, and, and for the reasons we've talked about as well, because it's a kind of miniature biography of our travels. Um, but at the same time, it puts us squarely within the gaze of the surveillance state. It limits where we can go. It says exactly where we can go and where we can't, depending on the visas that are contained in the document. Right. So it's a really a double-edged kind of thing. You know, every year... A number of different organizations, and not just one, there are at least three or four, come out with their list of the most powerful passports in the world. The passports that give you access to more countries, or the passports that restrict you to only a few. And some of these are surprises, right? So the, pa- the most powerful passport in the last survey might surprise you. You know what it is? In the latest? Let me know. St. Lucia. Huh. It gives you access to 146 countries. Without a visa. Interesting. Right? Switzerland's up there, right? What's the one that's the worst? The least powerful passport where if you want to go someplace, you're going to have to get a visa. Passport won't get you in. Afghanistan, Syria. Syria. Yeah. There it is. 
I think they give you access to 20 countries of 196 countries. Yes, yes. Yeah. In your research for this book, what was the most interesting passport you discovered? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's one story that continually reemerges for me as, as a, a powerful one about passports, and that has to do with Frederick Douglass, the emancipationist, the, the great anti-slavery activist of the 19th century. He made his own escape from slavery as a young man, about 20 years of age, using some borrowed uh, seamen's papers, documents quite like passports. So he adopted, he dressed up, in fact, and used seamen's lingo and so forth that he had learned in order to uh, escape north from slavery. And then for much of the rest of his adult life, he couldn't get a passport because of the Dred Scott decision, which denied uh, citizenship to African Americans, both enslaved and free. So he didn't actually get a passport himself until he was nearly 70 years of age. Wow. Which then for him was important for travel, but also as an indicator of his citizenship, his hard won citizenship. And then he set off for this magnificent journey across Europe and to North Africa to see the pyramids and so forth. So uh, he had this wanderlust that he had nurtured even before he escaped from slavery that he finally got to exercise as a 70 as a something year old. Uh, with this new passport. And the first piece of literature that I read that really dealt with passports was a book that most people don't realize is is available today. It was written by Mark Twain. It's not Mm. Huckleberry Finn. It is The Innocence Abroad. That was, the man took trips around the world in the 1870s that most people wouldn't even contemplate taking today. And And he talks about his passport, you know. Yeah, and there's some great comic scenes regarding his fears around the passport, his emotions, um, being fearful that he will be denied entry to various places, but then always being reminded that as a U.S. citizen with an American flag on the vessel he's traveling in and so forth, he has another kind of passport as well. He has the sort of foreign might of the U.S. government behind him. We talked about the definition today of the most powerful passport giving you access to most countries, but let's change the definition of the word powerful. What's the most powerful passport that if you have it, it sends a signal not to touch you? Hmm. I think that changes, uh, you know, by the week in some sense. Certainly the U.S. passport has a kind of international standing. It's probably the most desirable passport yes. for many. Um, it can be uh, a very important moment in someone's life when they finally attain a U.S. passport, having immigrated or otherwise come to the country. And uh, part of that is the... Um, sense of belonging that it allows the individual, but also the ease of travel in the sense that they do have the, uh, the uh, U.S. government behind them wherever they go in the world. Uh, I'm married to a woman who's Turkish, but she's also an American citizen. So she carries two passports. She has a Turkish passport and a U.S. passport. And because I'm married to her, next year I qualify for a Turkish passport. And you know I'm going to get it. Absolutely. But you know why I'm going to get it? Why? Because if I'm ever on a plane that's hijacked, and they hear, okay, all the American passports, I hold up the Turkish passport. Well, there, there are documents that are often called camouflage passports that U.S. passport holders will carry in certain circumstances that are either attached to uh, a country that's not their own or perhaps even a country that doesn't exist at all so that they can feign other citizenship if it's advantageous in the circumstances. So some will carry these fake documents for that reason. Well, speaking of fake documents... 
And of course, we're talking to Patrick Bixby, the author of License to Travel, because that's what a passport really is, uh, a cultural history of the passport. How much fakery is there of fraudulent documents out there? Well, I think it becomes more and more difficult now um, with the new technologies that we've referred to. But there's a wonderful history of fakes and forgeries uh, for all sorts scene, of reasons. But there's always the scene in the James Bond movie or any spy movie saying, here's your passport with your fictitious name. Here's your, right? And there, I'm sure somewhere in the CIA there's a laboratory where they make fake passports. Oh, sure. Yeah, and you know the, the Jason Bourne movies are another yeah. example of this where... Uh, the main character uses those, not necessarily to uh, get through uh, customs and immigrations, but to get tangled up so that he can get into the back rooms where the questioning happens and then you know, do his business on the CIA representative and steal his credentials and his phone and all that. So, yeah, it's, it's very much part of this world of espionage. So you like that so movie? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's an interesting movie when it comes to the passport, certainly, but it's a fantasy, right? It was very much a fantasy, this sort of rogue individual who can make their way around the passport system with their ingenuity uh, is, I think, more of a thing of the past. You know, so James Bond in the 60s, sure. James Bond in the 2020s, maybe not so much. Well, of course, I remembered this. I go back to, I believe it was uh, from Russia with Love, I might be wrong, where the Aston Martin had 17 different license plates that would flip around, <laughs> right? So in your research, was there somebody who had more passports than anybody else? You know, it, that isn't a question that came up too much for me. Uh, the interesting part of this, the passport uh, as something that you collect for use, not just for historical purposes, right. comes with the, the market for second passports that has emerged in the last 20 years or so during the course of the 21st century. For some of the reasons that you mentioned, uh, you, know, you can get a passport, of course, by naturalization or by regaining a citizenship, but there are other ways too, by investment, yeah. if you buy a piece of property in certain countries. They call that the golden passport. Yes, and you can even do it by just paying a fee, which is as little as $25,000 in some cases. Now, those aren't the most powerful passports, but if you have a Syrian passport, or even if you have a Chinese passport, it might be advantageous for your business, for your investments, for tax purposes, to have the passport of a small Caribbean nation, for instance. And so there are individuals in our own moment who are collecting passports for, not for espionage, not, it's not quite that sexy or uh, interesting, but for, you know, the, the purposes of their, their bank account. And of course, there, we, you know, in the shipping industry, we call them flags of convenience. Um, I'm sure there are countries out there where it's really easy to get a passport as a convenience. There are, yeah. And, and they are at the sort of top of the list of these in investment passports. And those countries would be what? Um, Karamos. Do you know this small island nation? Oh, the Comoros. Yes. The Comoros Islands, yes. yes. Um, St. Kitts and Nevis is another very popular passport for people who are getting them by. By the way, for, uh, spe speaking of St. Kitts, um, there's a wonderful movie um, about, uh, it was called The Laundromat. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, great cast, and it's about all the stuff that was going on, financial shenanigans, all going through the island of St. Kitts. So if the passport story for St. Kitts doesn't surprise me. And, of course, it's closely associated with various kinds of uh, bureaucratic uh, corruption of course. and so forth. Uh, so th there, there's a, a kind of 
dark shadow cast on many of those secondary pests, but they continue to serve the purpose that um, many investors want them for. And how many passports do you own? I just have the one, the U.S. passport, which serves me quite well. I would love to get an EU passport at some point. Why? Um, because of, well, the things that are happening in our country and continue <laughs> to happen in our country. But um, the, the ease of movement, for instance, during the pandemic, it became uh, impossible for a time for U.S. passport holders to make their way to Europe and around Europe. Um, but it also allows for other privileges in country if you have an EU passport, ease of transit through the entire Schengen region. But if you want to buy more property, if you want to send your children to school, if you want to live there long term, all of these things are enabled by that passport. And the U.S. passport won't give you those privileges. By the way, earlier in our conversation, Patrick was talking about looking at the passport and reading what's in it, reading the sentences that are in there. Go open your passport today if you have one or tomorrow, and you'll notice that every page is a quote. There's a quote from an American on each page of the passport, and uh, I think you'll find the quotes quite surprising. The U.S. passport is a kind of ironic document in many ways because it's, it contains these quotes from the founding fathers and other prominent Americans, um, but also these images on the stamping pages of iconic landscapes, of places like uh, Freedom Hall, uh, and so There's forth. even a bison in there. There's a, there, we have the plains in the U.S., Mount Rushmore, etc. So it seems to say there's really no reason to leave the U.S. This is such a wonderful place. <laughs> Why would you bother putting this document to use uh, at the same time that it is precisely for that use? And it's also a form of uh, soft power, marketing even for the U.S., you know, when you flash this thing around foreign countries and people get a, an idea. So... Many passports have that kind of uh, irony attached to them, that they're nationalistic documents, patriotic documents, if you like, a softer term, um, that sort of show off the, the bounty of whatever nation is attached to them, even as they enable the passport holder to leave that nation and go elsewhere in the world. Well, speaking of leaving our nation, earlier in our conversation, I mentioned 37%. Only 37% of Americans have a passport. Are you surprised by that number? Uh, I'm disappointed by that number. Oh, me too. Uh, surprised? I don't know. I mean, there are quite a few people, of course, who, for whom international travel is sort of beyond imagination. For economic reason, perhaps, just for you know, the limits of their own curiosity as well. If it were up to me, of course, I would you know, make it much easier to get a passport and encourage folks to do so. Because a passport gives you options. It gives you options. And it enables us to see the world in a different way than you're going to get through your television set or your smartphone or what have you, right? The kinds of encounters you have with other people, the kinds of experiences that you gather through travel are only attainable if you have that document. And you've, you know, we've said the U.S. passport is a very powerful document in some sense. So to not give yourself those privileges seems a shame. I'm reminded I was standing one day in front of the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, and there was a guy there with his arms around his girlfriend, and they were there in front of the, the faux bridge of size. And he looked at her and he said, baby, I've been to Venice. This is better. I almost threw up. But it smells better, but... Uh, well, <laughs> especially in August. But, <laughs> no, no. But, no disrespect to Venice. Know, but, yes. but the bottom line is, the only way you can make that statement, even if it's incorrect, is you got to go. Indeed, yeah. And, and 
you know, passports for touristic purposes, for seeing the sites, for you know, checking off the bucket list items, that's all fine and good. I'm more interested about the perspective that it allows those who travel, I mean, which you're very familiar with given your experience that, you know, encountering people from, I think we realize just how much we have in common, just how many shared interests that we have. And, and we can learn new ways of seeing the world, seeing our family lives, seeing our professional lives that you just don't get access to if you don't have that document. I'll give you my double-edged sword. There are 196 countries in the world. I've been to 152 of them. So I'm like, wow, how cool am I? But there's still 44 I haven't been to mm. yet. And then I go, wait a minute. I've been to 151 countries more than 63% of the American public. How dis disappointing is that? It's very disappointing. And one of the things, I hope that the book that I've written will encourage people to get passports, even if just for the kinds of fantasies that they can, even if you don't use well, the thing, right, having right. it gives you the possibility of doing these things that you just don't have without it. Even if you don't travel, read Patrick's book, License to Travel, because it'll get you excited about the entire history of the passport that you'll have, you'll just want to have one as a collector's item. You know, delude yourself into thinking you're buying a collector's item. And then about three months after you get it, you'll realize that if somebody says to you, hey, we're going to Europe tomorrow, you get a chance to go because you actually have the passport. Yeah, you, you give yourself that opportunity at hand at all times once you take possession of the passport. My thanks to Patrick Bixby, and my thanks to William McGee, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, I know you know the destination. PeterGreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand-new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.